History, Lecture 48, Rabbi Blyweiss. This is, uh, we, we've met now the new ruler, the tyrant, his name is Alexander, we've met our enemy, and he is not us. His name is Alexander Yana, he's married well to his righteous wife, Shlomis Alexandra, um, and he's got a righteous brother-in-law, Shimon ben Shetach. They are, are, uh, they are the, respectively the villain and the heroes of the story that we will set out for us today. Um, now, when, when we find that, we remember Yana is a major Tzuduki, a Sadducee. At this point, the Sanhedrin has become entirely uh, Tzuduki. They're ignorant of Torah. They're, it, it's such a, a backwards kind of an institution. They have both the king and the queen sitting among them. The queen, for her part, is there as a Tzedekis because she figures, well, it's a problematic institution as is, the fact that a woman is not allowed to sit here, shouldn't be sitting here, doesn't really, is the least of their problems, maybe I could do some kind of damage control. And you'll see where she'll play a role, uh, but it's really her brother who will ultimately play a role. She, the king and the queen are there on the Sanhedrin, and the, this Sanhedrin invents their own, what they call the Sefer Xeros, that kind of looks like a Hammurabi style, remember the Hammurabi code of, of lack of ethics? Uh, they have cruel laws. They literally an, ex, ex, extract an eye for an eye when a slandered bride, Motsi Shemra, a bride, a bride, the husband brings the Dam Basulin dress before the parents, they actually display that in court instead of bringing the adium a little more with a little more uh, discretion. The, uh, they do all kinds of strange things. They burn a Bas Cohen at the stake instead of uh, using the proper Mises base team, which is an internal burning. They do all kinds of things, and it's the kind of stuff you'd expect from somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, and they think they're reading the Torah literally. That's the Tzudukim. They rejected the oral tradition, they reject Chazal, and so they just do it themselves. And the results are sometimes uh, problematic, to say, it, to say it mildly. The king still, with all this going on, he recognizes his wife is a great person, she's a Tzedekis, and because of that, he enables his righteous brother-in-law, Shimon ben Shetach, to emerge to come out of hiding. And remember, more or less, most of the Chachamim are underground right now, ever since the episode from yesterday's class uh, where, where uh, he had them killed off. And now Shimon ben Shetach emerges and becomes a part of the Sanhedrin. And he accepts the work uh, to, do, to quietly restore the institution. See, Shimon has plans. He's going to uh, subvert the institution without the Tzedukim realizing it. And, uh, and we learn in Megillus Tainis that he convinces the Tzedukim to accept his young students. Most of his older students had already been killed off or fled. And one at a time, they start to gradually infiltrate the Sanhedrin. Finally, uh, as he quietly goes about his, his, his job, he's replaced the entire institution and restored the Sanhedrin to a Sanhedrin of proper Chachamim, as it was always meant to be. He simultaneously works to restore the Chachamim to their former glory. He sends a coded me message down to Egypt. Who's in Egypt? Can you remember this from yesterday? One particularly great person is there. Yoshua ben Prachia, the leader of the generation. <coughs> right, who, who, according to many accounts, was the teacher of, among his students, was Yeshu, uh, who may have been Jesus. 
Um, so he sends a message in code down, because he still had to do things, with, be discreet about it. He sends a coded message down to Yoshua, and Yoshua understands the message and also returns to Jerusalem. He does so also quietly uh, in order to lead and to, to reassert himself as the leader of the, one of the leaders of the generation. It's during the return trip, if it's really true that that's his, his student Yeshu, that that was Jesus, that, that many of the censored stories from the Talmud take place. So Yeshu who scraped the uh, encode on his body, yes. the secret of Egypt's sorcerers. They, they didn't let the secrets out of Egypt ordinarily, but he, Jesus was a madman, and he scraped the coded message on his body. And then it also happens then when he is at the inn, uh, they're, they're staying overnight at, 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 with an innkeeper, and Yashka has some foul things to say about the innkeeper's wife. And his Rebbe uh, criticizes him, Yoshua ben Prachia criticizes him harshly, so harshly that Chazal faults Yoshua ben Prachia. And uh, that's a whole question. We'll have to resume this later on. Maybe he's even he's even given the. If it wasn't for Yeshua ben Prachi, it may have been that Yeshu wouldn't have gone up the derech. He kicks him out. Right? He kicks him out. And then the story goes: Yeshu comes back and tries to make tshuva. What he doesn't realize is his Rebbe saying Kriyishma. And when he asks for his Rebbe's attention, and Yeshua ben Prachi doesn't listen to him, Yeshu assumes, oh, that means he's completely rejected me. And from that point, he goes off the derech. After he realized that he didn't. He never realizes that it was Kriyashma. So he's, he's a nutcase. And so he goes out to Derech and like that. Uh, so such, such is the story. Uh, there's another figure from this period, unless you get confused between Yeshu and Yehoshua ben Prachia, this, one, this figure is named Yehoshua ben Gamla. Just to keep it simple. That's simple? I know, too many Yehoshuas. So this Yehoshua ben Gamla is the Kohen Gadol, as we find him. He is a tzaddik. He's beloved by the Chachamim and interestingly also by the Tzedukim. He's sort of a neutral figure. He's not considered that qualified for the job. You remember in these days it was the highest, Kohen Gadol went to the highest bidder. In this case, his wealthy wife, Marta Bas Baitos, had bought, had bribed Yana and Hamelech for the job. And so he took the job, but the Chachamim weren't complaining because they see in Yoshua ben Gamla a ba- a, an essentially sweet-natured individual. And Shimon ben Shetach takes advantage of this diplomatic... Is he still faulted for bribing Maybe. Yeah, probably so. It's not, good. it's not a good thing to bribe your way into the no, high priesthood. By the sound of it, it sounds like he wasn't the person fit for the job. He wasn't fit for the job, but Shimon ben Shetach takes advantage of a good opportunity of good diplomatic opportunity, and he uses Yoshua ben Gamla's name. Yoshua ben Gamla is credited with something that he probably didn't do himself, probably with Shimon ben Shetach, who uses the name to make a very famous takana, and the takana, which means a, uh, a law, a new law, a rabbinic law, um, and the reason you use Yoshua ben Gamla's name is this way it can be accepted by everybody. Tzeduki, Prushi, everybody alike can, can accept such a law if it's in his name. The law is as follows. The um, every region has to appoint Torah teachers. You realize what's been going on in the Second Temple period. You realize this is a milestone. This is a turning point because up until now, almost consistently, Torah has been sliding because of ignorance, and the ignorance is simply accumulated 
You go a generation like this, and the situation is bad. But you go several generations along these lines, you have something that's not unlike the Ashkenazi world as we find it today in the world, which is so many generations far gone, they don't even have a vocabulary for Kedusha. They don't even know the basic essentials of Judaism when you go out into the world. Sephardim are, are, are um, several steps usually better the people from the Eden of Israel because they are not that many generations assimilated. So their, their knowledge, their, their core base of frumkite tends, um, tends to be much more established. Well, Shimon ben Shetach realizes the enemy is ignorance, and so he's going to solve that with his takana, called takana Yoshua ben Gamla, which means now it's an obligation. A pri- previously, Kimitzion Tetzetayra from Tzion, from Yushalayim, Torah was taught, and everybody came to gather on Yushalayim. Now, for the first time, and really as a changing point in all of history, Torah is out there and found wherever Jews may live. And that's going to mean that you're going to have Tamanich Chachamim who arise from the most remote, most unexpected place. It is a, the, it really it's a takana of ultimate Jewish democracy. Because it's spreading Torah far and wide to anybody who will reach out and grab the crown to take it. So this is called Takanas Yoshua ben Gamla. And uh, previously the problem was people didn't send their kids to learn. Now fathers are compelled to send their sons when they turn what's called the age of, of, of education, either six or seven, depending on the child's comprehension. We know that the future depends on education. And uh, this, this really changes history. So I, I, I try to give this a lot of emphasis when I teach history. You don't find this in mo- most history, history books. But uh, the, the spirit of the Torah as being something that's for all Jews everywhere uh, really is, is made, made firm in this, in this new measure. Uh, I say today this is as important and relevant as ever. You'll be involved in your own Jewish communities. Maybe you'll even go so far as to fundraise. Um, today, fundraising for Jewish education is very difficult. Maybe it's always been, but it's certainly difficult today. And yet today we live in times that people are not as strapped for cash. There's a lot of cash flowing out there. But it goes to all kinds of philanthropies that I question if they're really important philanthropies. I question, for example, um, if there's such a need for Holocaust philanthropy. Holocaust museums, do you know that there are over 60 in the world today? They exist on six out of seven continents. And um, some of them are redundant. And even of those that exist, there are too many buildings. Yad Vashem is too much money, I feel. Lafia Nuzdati. Because that money is money that could be spent on the future, and instead it's, it's spent obsessing in the past, which ultimately, I mean, I think people, people feel if they can give so much money to so many museums, we can stop a Nazi Holocaust from occurring. Halavai, I, I wish that they would be right. Rationally, one doubts that, that that's really doing much. And yet Jewish education, if you want to preserve the future, uh, contribute to the yeshivas and the Talmud Torahs, that's, that's something that's very difficult. But we have to keep our priorities straight. History, history I think, does teach us that. Um, Yanai is uh, really a detestable figure. Let me give you a couple of slices of his life to paint his picture. He is, at one point, forced to testify. He's called by the Sanhedrin to testify about his Ebed Knani, his Ebed uh, Knani, who was a Rotseach, who was a murderer. But the king, this king is a particular Russia, not so pleased. He, he finds it demeaning to have to come and testify to the Sanhedrin. Shimon Tzadik is fearless. Shimon Ben Shetach, excuse me. Shimon Ben Shetach is fearless. And he says, no, king, you're going to have to give edus. And 
uh, Yanai says, okay, well, have your colleagues back me up. What do they think about this? Should I, should I have to give my edus? And his colleagues all do one of, look, look up, Yitzi, Yitzi, look up. His colleagues all kind of like go like this, you know, the, this thing that you did when you, were, when you were three years old. Yeah, I didn't eat the last candy bar, Mom. That, no comment, no comment there. And um, yeah, that's a problem when they, when they do this. Um, the, really the logical thing under the circumstances, you can understand what happens next in the story. Gavriel comes down from the heavens and kills them all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Not um, good for you be a, to be a coward if you're sitting on the Sanhedrin Gidola. Not a good thing. Uh, and they make a decree from that point on because of, because of this whole event. Melech lodan v'lodonino so. He doesn't judge and he can't, he can't serve as a judge nor can they judge him. Lomeid v'lomeidino so. He can neither testify nor can they testify about him because of the concern that people will be intimidated by a king and therefore judicial process will not, will not uh, take, take place. In another instance, this is the, that, the previous was in Sanhedrin, this one's the Gemara in Sukkah, once on a Sukkot, Yanai, who's a full-fledged Sadduki, and they scorned the rabbis and all rabbinic decrees. One of the rabbinic decrees is what's called Nisuch Hamayim. We do water libations, the base of Mikdash, for the days of Sukkot, and of course, if you do them properly, if they're done properly, the world has rain in the coming years. So it's a pretty important part of the avoda. And Yenai does not hear any of it. He doesn't, it doesn't affirm this idea. He goes into the base of Mikdash when they're doing the Nisuch Hamayim, and he takes the water that's designated for holy purposes and he pours it on his feet. Nasty, nasty bit of goods, this, this Yenai HaMelech. Uh, and the people are appalled that he would have this desecration of the Mikdash in this way. And so on, uh, immediately the people who are who mostly on a very high level, most of the Jews were not Sadukim. They, uh, they were just the normative Torah Jews. They scream, Apikoros. Epicurean, we talked about, was one of the, uh, the Greek philosophers. And Apikoros is somebody who, who leads the life of Epicureanism, denying Hashem and, lead, and living, for the, living for the body and for the, uh, for the delights. They call him Ben Hashvua. Hashvuya, captive's daughter, referring to the rumor. The Remember the rumor that yesterday caused a lot of the problem? Either his wife or his mother's, excuse me, his mother or his grandmother's uh, was, was, was a captive woman, making him effectively all the descendants a chalal. Remember our Gemara and Makos? A chalal. Right, so they call him the bench Hashvuya. Uh, and they then proceed in one of the, I mean, it, on the surface view, it looks like a slapstick Mishnah. They all pelt him with their esrogim. Have you learned this? Have you learned Mishnah Sukkah? This is the famous Mishnah and Sukkah, and it's Yana Hamelech that they're throwing their Sukkahs at. So it, it may sound like a comic story. It's most definitely not. Yanai is outraged. He calls his guards, and they proceed to slaughter sixteen thousand Chachamim, and they imprison many others. So it's a bloodbath. Many will flee at this point. So just when Shimon ben Shentach seems to have gotten restored the Sanhedrin to the, to the Chachamim and tried to bring the Chachamim back, now, as it were, they're going underground again. Um, so many flee, including Yehuda ben Tavai, who's going to be one of the next of the Zugos. He flees down, down to Egypt again, to Alexandria. Um, in one episode... Yanahem Melech goes on a rampage and he captures 800 Yirei Shemaim, God-fearing people, in one day and has them murdered in what's now in the Greek and Roman empires the most 
cruel form of murder. You know what I'm talking about? Crucifixion. Excuse me, crucifixion. How do you crucify? You crucify, you don't. But they would, right. So the, the, uh, usually the figure was a cross. It didn't have to be. The idea, though, was that to have a person suspended so he'd be killed ever so gradually by the force of gravity until ultimately what killed him, um, his lungs collapsed. But it was excruciatingly painful in the process. Oh, Arya, you walk in always at the wrong times. Here I'm describing the most cruel, grueling, grisly form of death, and I refuse to repeat myself. But as I announced earlier today, you can now get updated versions of all of our shirim, including yourselves, online on my in, in the history section of the website. The newer versions of this class are all numbered now, one through four. I updated it last night. It's now one through forty-seven. If anybody chooses to listen, and I'm telling you just because I'm encouraging you, because I want you to uh, be. Um, thorough in your knowledge of history, I think you'll find this much more exciting when you do everything. But also, Robert, where's the, where's the lecture that you gave to the... It's there on the website, too, on the same page, labeled Hebrew, Hebrew College, College Rabbinic Students. It's Is it? Oh. On your I, phone. I you Not on your phone. In, in a regular web page, it looks different, but that doesn't matter. Um, so, he has 800 Yerei Shemaim crucified in a day. That's what he does. Uh, yeah, terrib terribly cruel fellow. He, um, as they slowly perish, as they slowly, slowly suffocate, anybody with asthma appreciates what kind of torturous death that would be, Yanai then uh, brings out their wives and children and then murders them all while the, uh, while the fathers watch and die slowly in their agony. What? Usually crucifixion takes about three or four days to finally do its job. How does he kill them? I'm sorry. I know that's an Arya type question too. I don't have the exact details. Indeed. I don't know what you're talking about. Always look on the bright side. I don't know what you're referring to. No. Was there an insight in, the, in your comment? No, no, no. I don't know. No, 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 I was just thinking of crucifixion. And I see. That was going to be the best one. Okay. Definitely. That, the, the Frenchman, the Frenchman, and the top of the wall. Yeah. Hi. Rabbi, which was your favorite one? Mine was a hamster, and your father smelled of elderberries. Is that a kind of dessert topping? Okay. The um, Yerushalmi tells us that Shimon ben Shetach and his students at this point go into hiding as well. But they still Again. A second time, right? They survive and they go into hiding. They're impoverished. They're absolutely broke, um, and they're living a very difficult life. Paspemelach of, of uh, living just just on, on bread and, and water, learning Torah uh, in, in, in a state state of persecution. At one point, so they can harvest the land, they raise a little bit of money, and the students go out to buy a donkey. They buy it from a Yishmaeli, famous story, a fish Yishmaeli. And when they come back, they bought it fair and square, and lo and behold, hanging on the neck of the donkey is a diamond. And they are ecstatic, because they realize this is the key. There's a Kaddish Baruch who has sent this diamond as a way of them not suffering and not dying of starvation anymore. And um, we know the halacha is Avedis Nochri. If you find a lost object that belongs to non-Jew, Mutter, you're allowed to keep it. They're technically within their rights to keep it and not be rich, but at least have food to put on their plates. And Shimon bin Shetach tells them, you'll return the diamond to the Ishmaeli. And the students said, but, 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 Remy, money, 
Food, Rebbe, food. He says, you'll return it right now. Um, and they do. And when the Ishmaeli gets the diamond, he exclaims famously, Baruch Hashem Elokei Shimon Ben Shetach. We call that a Kiddush Hashem. Last year, there was such a story. You know what I'm talking about? With the the young guy from Connecticut. Connecticut, I'm telling you. His name is? Young guy. He found in the dress in the desk. Oh, you already did? Oh, okay. And we have the new rabbi. Right. So let me at least, for, the, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, do you know the name of the young man? He's a fine, fine individual. He and his, he and his wife you know, live in Connecticut, which we're in Connecticut. Waterbury. And they, found, they purchased a desk from a, a used desk. At, oh, it was Craigslist, okay, so an o- online auction kind of place. And they, um, they found, how much money was it, 80000 $90,000. And they contacted the former owner and told her and gave it back. And, uh, and understandably, these things don't happen today. And it made the press. I know of another story in which a man purchased a house. This is 30 years ago, something like 30, 40 years ago. He purchased a house, and in the basement of the house was over a million dollars. And he approached Rav Moshe Feinstein, and uh, Rav Moshe said, give the money to the former owner. You will ne- if you keep it, you will never see a simon brachel. You will never see it. It'll never be a source of blessing for you. And the man also said, mm, gulp, okay. And he did. And this is simply a true story. I have several people who know the man. I don't know the man myself, but several people who I don't believe are lying or inflating the truth tell me that the man soon thereafter went into business and did spectacularly unpredictably well in business, so much so that he retired to Rehavia, uh, has one of those massive penthouse type deals in Rehavia, and supports himself and all of his sons-in-law who learned in Kolo full time with, with his money. And none of the money came from there. I can't promise you that such is waiting for you and as a material reward in this world, but um, it certainly, uh, we see lifnim mishirasadin. It's beyond the letter of the law uh, to do this even to non-Jews. It's a kiddush Hashem. When you return change in a, if they give you too much change in a in a store, and it's a non-Jewish store, Jewish store. If you don't return the change, it change you're a thief. But if it's a non-Jewish store and you return it, you've done a major kiddush Hashem. You should do such things. And uh, I'll, I'll save a story about Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky for when we get to him in the modern day um, that actually saved lives because of this, because he had this midah. The, the, the post office. office yeah. The post office, yeah. Uh, there was actually, uh, but on, on the same issue, Rabbi uh, Chaim uh, Kanievsky. Yeah. He, uh, he actually wrote a big thing on the Connecticut guy, the rabbi. He oh. actually says that he should have kept the money and donated it to Tzedakah. Jewish, Jewish Tzedakah. So he said that it actually was, it was, incorrect. It was the only opinion to say. Okay, fine, fine. Post, so that's what postkim do. They yeah. weigh in and they have their own views. Clearly there's another side of this, because, and this seems to be connected. The Shimon Machetov story seems to be precedent for what the uh, fellow in Connecticut did. Around what time, historically, I mean, as we get closer to now, the dates get more Yeah, accurate. more accurate, correct, correct. So I, I, I have, I, I'm, if you notice, I actually have been starting to include dates, and I'm going to be increasing for exactly the reason that you say, Elon. Um, this is about the, uh, Yanai begin, begins to be king, take the title king. You know every time I use the word king, I do it, uh, you know, advisedly, it's not legitimate. None of these people are king. They're Kohanim. They don't belong in the king. There's only one kingship that's based David. We don't have any kings since Tzipiao Amela. That's our last official king. But they use the term king anyway. He starts around 90 before the Common Era. 
So it's 90 So we're in the first century BCE with all these events. So, so it's um, it's during the Hasmonean period. Yanai is the descendant of the Hasmonean. He is right. the son of Yochanan bin Yochanan Hyrcanus, who himself is the son of Shimon, one of the five brothers. And and uh, like, but they're in control right now. Hasmonean are still yeah, in control. Okay. That's right. Right, that's about to change. Okay, yeah, yeah. Correct. Correct. Uh, I'm trying to paint the scene, so this is part of the scene, part of what's happening. The good guys are now going underground again. The At this point, Yana HaMelech and his fellow Tzedukim reach their highest point, their peak of success. It's only downhill from this point. Uh, they have political power, they've got wealth, they've got Greek lifestyle. Uh, and this is the point where we have almost exclusively Rishayim, who become Kohanim, who uh, de denigrate the whole process of the Avodah in the base of Mikdash. The only, their only motivation is personal gain. There are few exceptions to this, but that's generally the rule. The Gemara Psachim describes this period and it says, Oili, mi base Baitos. Woe to me is the house of Baitos. We already saw Martha, Bar Martha Bar Bas Baitos, who bribed for her husband to become the Kohen Gadol, but he's not the only one. Oili, mi base mi Katros. I only point out this Gemara briefly. Beit Katros is an interesting name. Has anybody been around the old city to the burnt house? Good, I think you did know this a lot. Uh, to the burnt house, they discovered in, in, the, in the inscriptions that that house belonged to a family named Katros. So very plausibly and reasonably, although we can't prove this for sure, maybe that was the same Katros family that the Gemara is referring to. It certainly lines up, it, ma it matches we know that the wealthy Kohanim were often living in the upper city, which was the wealthy section of Jerusalem back then. So it seems that it does line up very nicely. Uh, that maybe this Gemara is referring to exactly the same Katros family. Uh, at this point, Takanas Yoshua Ben Gamla, it's temporary halted because Yana and his other Tzedukim are not interested in people getting a good Torah education. But it'll be reinstated later on. Yeah. Don't know. Not important. A good question. Uh, sometimes bit players in the historical. His he, he was important because of his name, but he didn't play much of a, of a role. So presumably didn't couldn't have been, couldn't have ended so well for him if he was not qualified for the job. Uh, that's my guess, but I don't know. Um, around the year sixty six before the Common Era, I'm saying around the year because Elang also correctly says the years are very hard to get precisely. We have different accounts, and remember the. Secular dates don't always add up to the Jewish dates. So as best we can assess, it was about 66 BCE when a relatively young man, still only 46 years old, he was a drunkard, he was extremely powerful. Yanai falls ill and it's a terminal illness. He and his wife have two sons, but the two sons are too young. And he's concerned about who's going to replace him, who's going to take over the monarchy. And he still values his wife. She's a great person, and her greatness was perceived even, to, even by this Suzuki. He advises her, don't tell them I died until you can get the support of all the rabbis behind you so that you, Shlomis, can replace me. Probably his great virtue was recognizing her, her own, uh, the, the greatness of his wife. When he dies, she follows his plan. You should be aware in Halacha there's a problem with the concept of srara, of, of leadership with regards to women. 
Shlomis was aware of this. We talked about this briefly when we talked about Dvorah the Shofetes. It was an exception to the rule that she was the Shofetes. It was the, it, uh, the Medrash says it was deliberately a Kaddish Baruch who arranged for this as, as a comeuppance to Sisra. Um, we had the other queen, who was the other queen in history? No, 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 she wasn't the queen of Jews. Who was the queen? Asalia. Asalia, but she's the exception that proves the rule because she was a wicked queen. She, through, through, through all kinds of conspiracy, was able to rise up. Um, here, though, it's not even the legitimate monarchy. Uh, it's just a question of taking leadership. She follows this plan, and the complexity of the times, and combined with her unique position, she was a beloved figure. She's, you know, in the people's eyes, she represents the house of the Hashmonaim. Uh, and the Chachamim realized she's really the best option. So when she's 63 years old, the, the Chachamim themselves crown her, coronate her as the new queen of Klal Yisrael. And she rules until approximately 57 BCE, nine years. She actually is, uh, her name is, is changed. She becomes, she turns from Shlomis to Shlomzion, Shlomzion Amalka. What do we know about her? She was a wise person. Uh, apple didn't fall far from the tree. She came from a house of Chachami. Remember her brother, Shem Ben Shetach. She's a beloved Sedekis. And her strategy in leadership is to give Chazal, mainly through her brother, but not just, carte blanche to run the country. So she's effectively a puppet ruler who's, in, who's giving this very short nine-year window of time authority to the rabbis to take over the country again. Is her brother back? Certainly he comes back. And, um, yeah. Her eldest son, Hyrcanus, becomes the Kohen Gadol, but it's only a name because he's too young to do anything. Hyrcanus, we're going to see. Um, I'm going to give you, maybe you, somebody can remind me and I'll try to remember, I have to give you um, soon the Hasmonean family tree because there are a lot of names and at one point it's going to sound like a soap opera. It's so complicated keeping track of who's who and they're all interrelated. So it, it's gonna, it'll be useful to have this. So Hyrcanus now is the son of Yanai and Shlomzion. He is a weak, hapless fellow who, classic Greek style, likes the easy life. But Shlomo his mother, holds out hope. Maybe the, maybe the boy could be, uh, could be redeemed. She has a younger son who's described as quick-footed and handsome. His name is Aristobulus, who she, just, she appoints as the general over the Tzedukim. The Tzedukim are a very powerful, non-negligible faction. You can't ignore them. I don't know what you're thinking of. I, my association is Naftali. Naftali of the Shvatim had the ability to run very fast, but I don't know what you're thinking of. I don't, I don't know of any such story associated with Aristobulus. Uh, she sends the Tzedukim away from Jerusalem so that the Chachamim now, called the Prushim sometimes, can, take, uh, can, can ascend and, and, and take, take a, have the dominant. Her success is described in Chazal as because she's a Balas Chesed. She's somebody who loves people and acts accordingly. For nine years, the country enjoys peace. It's effectively um, among the only, it's, uh, these nine years are among the only peaceful times of the entire Second Temple period. We saw a, a very brief uh, period under Shimon at Tzadik, another brief period under Shimon 
the, the uh, Hashmonai, and now again it is Shlom Tzion, and indeed her name is like her times, like Shlomo HaMelech is the other arguably great peaceful time among the Jews, Shlomo reflecting the times, so too Shlom Tzion is a reflection of her own times, the peace of the times. It's, the Gemara Tiny says, the rain falls on what's called Lele Revios and Shabbos, on, uh, on Tuesday nights and on Shabbos nights, that's called Gishme Bracha. Uh, why is that Gishme Bracha? Because people generally did not travel on Tuesdays and Shabbos. Shabbos, obviously, Tuesday because market day was Monday and Thursday morning. So presumably, people were to travel, they would leave for market on Sunday, get there, on, and then travel back, travel back home on Monday. So Sunday, Monday was a travel period, and again, Wednesday, Thursday was a travel period, but Tuesday night was neutral. And if the roads were a little wet and muddy, didn't bother people. So that was how the time is described here, it's as if HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself is giving them, uh, is giving the, the supremacy of the Chachamim during this time, his own personal gushpanka stamp of approval, the produce is abundant. Uh, the Jews are enjoying life under the uh, supremacy of Tyra. And of course, all the formerly imprisoned Chachamim, the exiled Chachamim, are now streaming back to Jerusalem. Certainly, Shimon ben Shetach comes to lead. They restore their Takanos, especially the Takanos of, of Yeshua ben Gamla. It's a complicated time <laughs> because it's two steps backwards, two steps forward. The previous decrees were now take, put back. It's sort of like the end of the first temple period in that way, where you had good guys and bad guys each trying to subvert the other and the previous rulers. During this early period, Yoshua ben Prachia dies, and the new Zug emerges in the form of Yehuda ben Tavai. Notice we're still on a first name basis with all of these Chachamim. Yehuda ben Tavai is his student. And um, he emerges, he had fled to Alexandria when we last saw him, and now he returns and he resists. Yudha ben doesn't want to return, so they have to beg him. The uh, Mishnah Pirkei says, Rodef achar kavod, anybody who chases honor, kavod boreach mimenu, honor runs away from him. But boreach kavod, somebody who tries to flee from honor, so honor catches up with him and grabs him. So that's the latter view is illustrated in this. He didn't want to be the leader of the Jews, but they said, you're our rabbi, you have to do it. So Yudha ben Tavai rises to the occasion and comes back to lead. And he's, he and Shimon ben Shetach become the next Zug, the Nasi, and Abbastin. There's an argument about who's who, which one is the Nasi, which one is the Abbastin. That's a little unclear. Um, what is clear is they have the same argument over Smicha. Remember the same argument, the one argument that exists still exists. There's no other argument at this point in history reflecting the times. It's gradual decline. Uh, that year, when everybody comes back, a 40-year-old from Bavel comes to Yushalayim for the second time. His name is Hillel. Okay, the first time, remember, he saw Yeshu ben Prachia, Shech de Paraduma. Now this is, he reports, the second time he comes up during this little window of time of happiness and prosperity for Klal Yisrael. Uh, Shimon ben Shetach begins massive reforms, trying to, uh, trying as, as, as it were, to upgrade Tyra. In one very famous story, there is a notorious group of 80 witches who are living, live in a cave down in Ashkelon. Somebody just asked me, you asked me, somebody else asked me about this story. Uh, witchery, of course, is a, is a capital offense, not allowed to be sorcerers. So he has this great ruse that he pulls. He takes 80 tall men, and he has them stand outside, and it happens to be raining. 
So he has them um, put into bottles, dry clothing, and he has them stand, standing quietly outside the, uh, the cave. And Shemim Shetach enters the cave alone at first and tells the witches, I am going to do a magic trick. And magically, he produces the 80 men out of nowhere uh, who come in, of course, in their dry clothes, having, re- having just changed in them. And the witches can't explain that because anybody coming in from the outside should certainly be wearing, we should be drenched from the water. The witches, in fact, are so stunned by this display of magic that they are caught off guard, and each of the 80 tall men takes a witch and holds her in the air. And I don't know if you know this, in the rule of witchcraft, a witch cannot perform when they're flailing their legs, when they're they're screaming and flailing their legs, being suspended above ground. It's probably obvious. I don't know these rules. <laughs> three tzvachim. Three tzvachim over the ground. I'm not there yet. No. Um, he decrees a special Horus Sha'ah, a special decree. He has the, all 80 witches hanged. Um, later on, the story does not end well. Later on, it's, it's Sanhedrin. It's also the Yerushalmi Chagiga talks about this story. Um, the families of the witches are angry at Shimon ben Shetach and take, take revenge. They, the witches have families, and they, the families hire false witnesses, and they testify about Shimon's son, that he was a murderer, and they actually uh, they succeed in having the son killed in court because of this trumped-up charge of murder that was not true. They were Adim, they were false witnesses, Adi Shekir. If they were Adi Zoma, maybe somebody would have come. They would have come before they succeeded in their in their in their scheme to. Uh, they were successful. They were Adi Shekir. Exactly, they were successful false witnesses. Correct. In another episode, this one in Gemara and Shabbos, um, one time Shlonsion had a dish that touched a dead body, a mace. What's the halacha? Um, it's tome, and toiveling won't be good enough. You need a more rigorous form of purification. Dishes, uh, dishes are difficult. So she does, she does something. It's it, it, probably not a dish, uh, some kind of a cleat that can be dismantled. And this is one thing you can do as well. If you dismantle it enough to be re- to then reassemble it, where it loses its name of a cleat because it's no it's no longer usable as such, and then you reassemble it, it becomes a new new vessel and you can use it, and it's not Tommy anymore. And so she does that reasonably. She's following, she's following Halacha. She's a Yerei Shemayim. Um, and uh, she has it refinished by a Tzorif, by a, by a silversmith. And um, Shimon, even though she did the right thing, Paskins, that such vessels retain their Tuma, he was concerned that if people followed the Queen's model, they would neglect the mitzvah of what's called the Mei Chatas Ephra Para. The real approach to a, a vessel that, du- that touches a dead body is you should use the water from the chatas of the ashes of the paraduma. He was concerned that the people get out of practice in, in following that halacha, so he was machmir. A little slice of life. Um, at the end of the nine-year period, near the end, ben, at some point, Shimon ben Shetach passes away, as does Yehuda ben Tavai. They're, they're only in... They're only, um, in their position as the leading zoo for a brief period, the um, Aristobulus, the younger son, the Tzaduki son, they're both Tzaduki, both Hyrcanus and Aristobulus are, are, are big time Hellenized Jews, 
and the Tzedukim conspire with Aristobulus to overthrow the queen. The intrigue is not gone. That's what the Tzedukim live for is the power. Uh, and Aristobulus may be handsome and he may be quick-footed. He uh, didn't do so well in the brains department. And he was talking to his mother and foolishly he revealed the whole plan to her. But at this point, she's elderly. And she doesn't have her brother there backing her up anymore. She weeps and somehow allows the Tzedukim to escape anyway. Uh, if she had been more uh, of her wits, she would have had them imprisoned. And the Tzedukim go back and they create fortified cities and they plot their return to power. Later on, the queen is actually lying uh, on her deathbed. And Aristobulus returns, threatening her. Uh, and he comes, literally, he comes into his mother and he threatens his mother like all the unprincipled Greeks, Greeks that we've heard about. You remember Aristobulus, his like-minded uncle, Yanai's brother, who also caused his mother to die in prison because he was concerned about power. Power was all that mattered to him. So, so too, Aristobulus threatens Slomtzion. Uh, and there is tremendous intrigue and the different factions are all concerned. Hyrcanus knows what's going on and he's concerned because he's the Kohen Gadol. He doesn't know about his wicked brother. The Chachamim, for their part, are also concerned. They each appeal to the queen. They say, you have to help us. You have to ensure that after your death, that somehow all the great decrees that you've ensured during your term as queen will continue. But at this point she's dying and she's exhausted and she says she yields her holdings to Aristobulus who seems to be too strong for her to, to, to counter and she says, please leave me alone and as she's quoted, I'm returning my neshama to the king, capital K, how can I deal with matters of this world? In an otherwise very fine life of righteousness. She is certainly one of the heroes of history. She lived during these very complicated times, married unscrupulous people, and maintained her righteousness. Um, this is not her greatest moment, was in her death. And I contrast it with other tzaddikim who do great things in their death. You remember David Melech ensuring that the monarchy would pass on to Shlomo and not to Adoniahu. Uh, we'll meet Rabbi Akiva in his death, arguably, arguably his finest moment in a lifetime of, of, of a collected fine moments, we'll find Rabbi Yisrael Salanter at the end of the 19th century as he dies alone with a, um, with a, uh, a lone shomer, a young man. Do you know the story, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter? He's, um, you can tell endless stories about him. As he, as he is um, laying dying, he's, he is not left alone. We try to take care of people when they're living, when they're dying, and even after their death. And there was a Shomer there, but the Shomer didn't know the halacha very well and was terrified that in a few minutes he'd be alone with the dead body. And so in his last breaths, every, all that Rabbi Shosalanter talked about was, oh, it's fine, you can be alone with the dead body. It's actually, a, you get, you're doing a mitzvah, so you'll be, you'll be protected from any evil spirits, not an issue. And then you die. His whole last, uh, last, his whole last period in Olam Hazeh was spent doing chesed, thinking about the other guy. So there's a, there, even when you're when you when a person's dying, you have an opportunity. That much Shlomo did not did not do in an otherwise great life. Now she dies. The year is about uh, fifty seven in the before the common era. Hyrcanus asserts himself, the older son. Uh, he tries to be the new king. Aristobulus attacks. He's ready. As we expected, 
there's a war between the two factions. Hyrcanus, in theory, has, uh, has the people in Jerusalem on his side. The Chachamim resist taking sides. Aristobulus is fighting from the outside. There are heavy, heavy casualties all around. Um, in the end, both brothers are Hellenists, so it's bad versus bad. A truce is finally arranged. And a new figure that you have to get his name down. His name is Ant- Antipator. He's an Edomite convert. And he's a master manipulator. Yes, you remember when Yochanan Hyrcanus went around the country converting all these foreign populations so that the Jews would have the demographic edge? So one of the famous con- converts is Antip- Antipater, or Antipater. Antipatros was named for him. There's a place out near uh, Rosh Ha'ayin called Antipatros that bears his name. Uh, he is a master manipulated. He was also he's a convert to Judaism, but also was influenced by the Greeks, by the Hellenists, and uh, he will manipulate both Hyrcanus and Aristobulus because he likes the fact that they're warring with one another. You know why? Yeah, for sure. He can move in for the kill when both sides have significantly weakened one another. Then uh, they're basically laying, laying the the uh, the way for him to come in. And, and he plans on moving in. He, by the way, has a has a son that's of, of some interest to us. Antipater has a son. Anybody know the name of the son? Herod. That, but that's that's where we're ahead of ourselves right now. But I'm trying to connect all the dots here. Uh, during this period, there's one particularly famous chacham. Uh, sometimes we were zochim to go visit his kever, the traditional kever. His name is Choni Hameagel. Choni Hameagel. Choni, the circle maker, although some would correct the translation there. Um, notice at this point in history still, no titles. Nobody's a rabbi. Yoshua ben Prachia, Yehuda ben Tavai, Shema ben Shetach, Choni Hameagel. That's quite intentional. We'll talk about that. The Gemara Tainis tells us his, uh, a few of his stories. Yeah, very important stories, and they also paint a scene in the background. He's a contemporary of Shimon ben Shetach. You'll notice now, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I said that Shimon ben Shetach had died, but one of the stories that Shimon is alive for. Um, there was a terrible drought at one point in Yerushalayim. We know that also the Talmud is not a history book, so our ability to say precisely when this takes place in the scheme of the other historical sources that we have, we're limited. So that's why dates... Ilan correctly said before, are a little bit tricky for us. But sometime during this period, there's a drought. It's due to, mitz- it's due to negle- negligence in mitzvahs. And of course, because of the drought, there's going to be a famine. It lasts three years. Nobody knows what to do. So what do you do under those circumstances? You turn to the tzaddik. Choni, choni, you have to daven for us. All the people beseech him. And he davens. And nothing happens. And so, like like the great Habakkuk Hanavi, and we saw we heard this story once before, Habakkuk did a very similar trick. Choni draws a circle. And he enters the circle and he says to Kadesh Baruch Hu, I, I, my parshanut on this is he says in a very calm, level voice, he says, that's fine. You don't have to bring rain. I'll just stand here in the circle. Don't worry about me. Choni uh, Magel says, effectively threatening a Kadesh Baruch Hu, and why is that? A, why, what, why, why should a Kaddish Baruch care about such things? Passive aggressive. Passive aggressive. Why, why should that be a threat? So, 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 so the sovereign of the universe should be bothered by, by a man standing in a circle? If you're talking about one of the tzaddikah hador, yeah, that, that's a problem. Right, right. So, and when Choni speaks, 
A Kaddish Baruch Hu listens, as it were, because when you're tzaddik, you have a Kaddish Baruch Hu's ear. He pays attention, and clearly, Choni is purely the Shem Shemayim. So, Hashem hears, and indeed, drizzle. Drizzle comes to the world. And Choni said, I didn't ask like that. So then there's a torrent, uh, a, down, a downpouring of rain, and Choni says, not what I wanted, Hashem. And finally, it's followed by what's called Gishme Bracha, the perfect, best kind of rain, uh, perfectly helpful and, and helpful to the to the crops. And then, when the rain reaches the uh, reaches uh, the high point, he asks for the rain to stop, and indeed it stops. Because he's got, as it were, a Kaddish Baruch Hu, whatever he asks, a Kaddish Baruch Hu seems to do so much so. Shimon ben Shetach, who was still alive when this took place. Uh, tells him, you know, if you weren't Choni Magel, I would have put you in Nidui. I would have excommunicated you. But you're allowed to do this because you're Choni Magel. Do you remember this good history question? We saw earlier in, in history another couple great figures who spoke what's called Metiach Dvarecha. They spoke with impudence to Kaddish Baruch Hu. Chana. Gemar and Brachos and Lamed Aleph. Very good. Very good. Okay. Um, we learn of a story, and there are two stories that simply contradict one another. So I'm going to share them with you, and I'll give you a suggested explanation. But as I pointed out, not all of these loose ends can be uh, explained in history. So in the one story we find, Hyrcanus brings his men to Choni. They ask him, please curse my brother Aristobulus. Again, the wars are going on, and it's a plague to all the Jewish people. And Honi, instead of listening to their request, he davens, please Hashem, let neither of these Rishayim succeed. Which is the correct tefillah. And the men hear that that's what Honi davens, and they kill him. That's one story. In a separate story, in a different Gemara, uh, a probably more famous story, Honi is still alive. And he wonders about... What does it mean, the description of, of Golos Bavel? You know what? One of the famous descriptions of Golos Bavel, of the Babylonian exile, was Shir HaMalos, B'Shuv HaShem, Zion. Help me here. How do the next words go? Hayinu Kechomim. Eshivat Zion. When we returned to Zion, Hayinu Kechomim, we were like dreamers. Knowing that this is a reference to the Babylonian exile, he wondered, what does that mean? that people would be 70 years like dreamers? Could a person conceivably sleep for 70 years? Now, you know, if it's you and me and we're learning a little of Agatha and we come to that, we, we start to wonder, it's not such a big deal. But you know, if you're a tzaddik of the proportions of a choni ma'agel, you have to be careful what you wonder. Because choni wondered, what would it be like to sleep for 70 years? And then he meets up with a man who's planting a carob tree. Carob, you should be aware, you don't have to be aware, but carob is actually not an indigenous tree to Eretz Yisrael. This is, among the, this is around the first time in history that we find carob trees. From this point on, we'll see a lot of carob trees in Israel, but it clearly was an import. We never hear about it. It's never once mentioned in the Tanakh. That's a good question. I'm sure there's an answer to it. I don't have it. Flora and fauna, not my thing. Uh, not not that knowledgeable. I can tell you as much as there was not previously carob. And he sees a man planting carob. And in addition to its not quite chocolate properties, uh, okay, some, some chocolate lovers would beg to differ with you. But okay, uh, one of the other disadvantage of carob is, okay, so it's helpful. But it also takes a really long time to grow. In fact, 
about 70 years before its fruit it, uh, emerges from the tree. True, fair enough, but he, uh, Connie asks the man, why is he planting a tree that only bears fruit 70 years later? And the man explains one of the great explanations in all of Shas. He said, and this is so symbolic of life and Tyra and so much of what we stand for, my forefathers, see, they planted the trees for me, so I plant for my grandchildren. That's how we live our lives, we Jews. We're not just about the here and now and ourselves. We're always thinking about the future. Uh, and Honey hears it, and he sits down, and he eats bread, and has a nice lunch. And after lunch, he does what a lot of us just like to do. Some people are even doing it right now as we speak. He takes a nap. Only Honey's nap is not through all of history class. It lasts 70 years. He is what we consider the original Ichabod Crane. Oh, and, and, uh, who is it? Rip Van Winkle as well. Uh, and he is able to sleep unnoticed. Apparently a massive stone covers him so nobody notices the sleeping man on the side. It's a nace. And he wakes up without realizing it 70 years later. He finds a man picking carob from the tree. And that's, as if that's not odd enough, he looks at the man's facial features and it looks semi-familiar to him. He says, are you that man who planted this tree? And the response is, no, no, that's my grandfather. I'm the grandson. My grandfather passed away years ago. Choni then figures out what's gone on and he goes home and he asks for his family and uh, not many uh, familiar faces there, but he hears that his that the grandson of Choni Amagel is there and he approaches the grandson and neither the grandson nor anybody else believe that it's really Choni. He goes to the base Medrash and they also don't believe that it's Choni. And so Choni becomes weak and he davens, he seeks Rahmanus from Hashem and he dies with the famous words, you know the famous words? O Chavrusa, O Misusa. And JFK ripped him off. I'm telling you right now. Because it was JFK who said, give me liberty, give me death. No, give me, no, 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 no. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. But he was spinning on Choni's line, give me a chavrusa or give me death. That, 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 that idea, right. Uh, give me a chavrusa or give me death. Uh, the idea of learning Torah being essential to our life, and, and he dies on the spot, which you have to understand what that means. Um, so we have two different stories that recount Kony's death, and they're not seemingly reconcilable, so the Marsha says it like this. He says, in the first story, um, Hyrcanus, his men attempted to murder Kony and thought they did, but Kony survived it. And it was shortly thereafter that he goes to sleep, and the reason why his grandson and the others don't believe that it's Kony is they all heard the story that Kony was assassinated. And so this imposter coming back couldn't possibly be Choni. And that's how he's able to parse the stories. The different Mepharshim over the years try to take these loose strands of history and try to reconcile them. I don't mind, as I constantly say, I don't mind that things don't work out. Yes, we don't get it. That's fine. I don't think there's enough comedic for our lives. All these stories anyway paint a picture, give us an image of what life was like. I think that is, 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 uh, is adequate, is sufficient uh, for, our, for our purposes in trying to understand what, where, where we come from. The next Zug, which is the fourth pair of leaders of the Jews, are named Shmaya and Aftalion, uh, one of the two of the graves of Tzadikim that were most frequently uh, visited by the Arizal in the 16th century were Shmaya and Aftalion. 
Uh, and it's a place I love to guide when I have a chance. I've never taken Derek there, but I take a lot of people when I can. Shmai Natalion, you recall, descend from uh, a wicked man. We see this a lot in history. We see a lot of people in this time period, um, righteous people who descend from wicked. In their case, Sancheriv's sons, remember Sancheriv who set siege to Jerusalem and uh, all the camp is killed by 185,000 people are killed by Gabriel and Sancheriv survives it and then only to be killed by his sons. His sons convert, they're righteous, uh, they're righteous individuals and their descendants are Shmai and Avtalion, the next, the next set of a, of, of a pair of, of, Zugi, of, of the Zugos. Um, they become Nasi and Abbastim, respectively. They have an argument, same argument over Smicha. Their students include a young Shammai and uh, another, a, a young Yehuda ben Becerra and his brothers. The story is told about Shammai and Abtalion's base Medrash. When they gave Shear, people gathered from far and wide. They had to put a guard by the door who collected a fee and not everybody could afford the fee. And one Arab Shabbos, a uh, poor man came to learn Torah from the Gedolim and was refused because he couldn't afford. He was so one of, the one of the most famously poor men of all history, he couldn't afford to pay the entrance. So he, did, he got on top and perched himself on a window so he could listen to the shear. Uh, and then he was covered by three, almost three cubits of snow. The next day, Shmai and Avtalion are learning, and they notice it's dark in here. What's the going on? How come it's so dark? How come the window's not letting in light? And then they look up, and they notice this, there's, a, there's a man up there. And they go, and they remove the snow, and they figure out, oh, this man came so close because he wanted he was most nephish for learning Tyra, and his name, of course, was Hillel. The same Hillel we've been seeing. These are the early days of Hillel, and they proclaim about him, This one is certainly worthy of desecrating upon him the Shabbos. It's a misleading statement because obviously any Jew, we would desecrate Shabbos to save their life, but certainly Hillel uh, in his mysterious nefesh for Torah is worthy of that. Uh, last point for today. Um, while Hyrcanus and Aristobulus go back and forth, and I'm simplifying, if you want, you can see a much more elaborate version of who's, who's winning, who's losing, but effectively for the next, the next four years of history is one extended war battle with a few uh, breaks in the fighting between Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. And at one point, Hyrcanus and his party, they're outside of Jerusalem, and Aristobulus and his, his camp, they're on the inside. And it's, uh, the people on the outside still have to bring their korbanos, and on some level, the Tzadukim still practice some of the halachos. And so their practice was to hoist sheep up on the walls to offer their korban tummy. So people should, should be part of the, uh, the ongoing service in the base of Mikdash. And on the inside, there's a Russia, an elder Russia, who mocks them. And he starts using what was called chokma yevonis, a certain kind of ancient Greek wisdom to mock them. And they're none too pleased, Hyrcanus and his, and, his, and his followers. So the next day, as a form of retribution, instead of hoisting a sheep up the walls, they hoist... No, no, that would have been good. No, instead they hoist a chazir, a big swine, up the walls. Uh, and that you're not supposed to do. And uh, halfway up the walls of Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, the swine itself clenches its nails into the wall and, and lets out a shriek. And the shriek is so uh, so uh, 
immense that it causes an earthquake, and an earthquake rocks all of Eretz Yisrael, 400 parsos, Persian miles by 400 parsos. Hashem then follows up by sending a plague and a famine, all because of this chain of events that spins out of control. This is an uh, episode brought in Baba Kama. After this, Chazal make two decrees. One who raises swine, this applies till today, pig in Eretz Yisrael, or alternately one who learns Chochma Yavonis, uh, is cursed. Chochmi Yavonis is now a defunct kind. It was an esoteric kind of a wisdom. We're not allowed to do this. But uh, today, today, unfortunately, the first decree is not upheld so widely. What's called Basar Lavan, white meat. Um, by the way, that's not the that's not the chicken breast. Do not order. Do not go to a restaurant with it that claims to sell white meat. In Israel, Basar Lavan literally means pig, pig flesh. Um, and sadly. I think, I think the statistic is still too over 50% of the restaurants in Tel Aviv, just for yeah. example, sells, sell uh, non-kosher food. And usually when Jews go non-kosher style, they go, they go all out. If they're going to do it, they're going to do it. They're going to shrimp, lobster, oh, you got it. Oh, 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 and with the influx of many of the non-Jewish Russian immigrants over the last 20 years, especially, uh, Basar Lavan has, has made a comeback in Eretz Israel, clearly in defiance of this decree. But, yeah. But you still can't say... Farm pigs on, the, on Israel land. They In theory, but that's also a law. If, if this government it looks on the verge of collapsing, as, as, as interesting Israel, we're kind of watching history unfold as, you, as you're here for the year two or 12. The, uh, the, uh, they were meant to make a decree to allow them to, to officially farm swine. We'll see what winds up happening. Yeah. Anyway, this is the decree. Around the corner, looming, and really we're going to have to focus on tomorrow, is a new, a new power on the block. And it's a power that's going to emerge with a vengeance and not disappear quite so quickly. And it's not Yitzi, it's rather the Roman Empire. So we'll pick up with that tomorrow. As the Jews start to implode and their fighting makes everything fall apart, the Romans are going to come and move in.